All right, who's first? Questions, comments, you name it. Who's going to break the ice? Could this be the shortest question <laughs> answer? Going. Are we going here? Just chewing? <laughs> yes, sir. <clears throat> okay. Um, point E on number five. Any teaching that promotes self-dependency or self-actualization. Without getting too political or political as you want, how do we square being self-dependent in our, in our country, not relying on other people for our, our living with this. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. We were meant to be interdependent, not independent. Uh, even in Thessalonians, he talks about living a quiet life so that you uh, don't become a burden to others. But that doesn't mean that aren't dependent at all on other people. It just means you have a certain level of responsibility with your resources to where you're not a burden, but never independent where you don't need anybody. Because if that were the case, then the church would not be the church because then talks about in Ephesians 4, each part providing that which causes the body to grow in love. So in this country where people want to be self-sufficient, We want to be interdependent. I can, with what God gave me, sustain myself at a level where I'm not a burden to other people, but never at a position in life where I don't need anybody because it doesn't fit Scripture. You can't grow without other people. You can't grow without relationships. You can't grow without being a part of the body of Christ. You can intellectually have knowledge, but you cannot grow in your Christ-like conformity without the community of Christ. So, does that, does that make sense? Hmm? Hey, anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Here she is, and here he comes. So you've talked a lot about our motives and our hearts, and so I just have a question about decision-making, because um, we've talked about our motives aren't ever going to be completely perfect, and at some point you have to make a decision. Yes. So how do you evaluate your heart in that? One of the things you have to do is look at the areas of life when it comes to decisions where God has commanded you to do something, and it's really are you going to do what he says or not? And then those areas of life where God has given you freedom to make a decision, you don't necessarily have to overanalyze yourself. If God says you're free to choose what you want, then you choose what you want, but you have to do it by faith. And what it means by faith is your conscience is clear. And if that's the case, then you don't have to overanalyze it. God says, hey, whatever you want in this area, you're fine. Make a decision. Just do it. Make sense? Yep. Thank you. What are some ways to, you talked about like not having intellectual belief. Um, What are some ways to make sure Bible study reaches a deeper level than just intellectual acknowledgement of the facts. What are some ways, especially with like the character of God, what are some ways to really make sure it is more practical than just head knowledge? 
So for every insight that you gain about your Lord, your Savior, your King, you need to think about other areas of your life to say, based upon this insight, what are some ways that I need to be thinking now with this insight and begin to develop ways of thinking? Based upon this insight, what are some ways I need to be communicating? And you start developing in that. Based upon this insight, what are some of the ways that I need to start to carry myself and begin to come with strategic plans to do that? Based upon this insight, what are some of the ways I need to relate to others differently? Based upon this insight, what are some of the ways I need to serve? And as you do that, it takes it from intellectual insight to moving by the Spirit of God and His Word into practice. And the more you strategize that on a weekly, monthly basis, you will see that his presence comes alive because God makes himself known to us the more we obey, the more we put to practice there with us. So that's kind of how you move it from just, I now understand what this text is to now what do I need to do with it? It's always a thinking, always a communication, always an agenda, always a area of behavior, always some type of relationship thing or some serving that needs to be developed in your life. Yes, sir. Right there. So you had uh, mentioned that God brought you through different things in your life. One of the, one of the, the example you mentioned was faithfulness. Um, and I hope this isn't too personal of a question. Oh, I'll let you know if it is. <laughs> I'll say that is none of your business. No. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> what is God teaching you now? Now he's teaching me patience and how to wait and that he is good even when things aren't going my way. Uh, he's helping me work through truly contentment because my sense of well-being tied too much to the outcome of things or the attitudes of other people or things working out. And so for a while now, he's not let people change in certain areas in my life. Uh, Certain things have not come the way I want it to come yet, but yet my well-being, I've been restless. So the Lord has been teaching me what it means to have sufficient satisfaction apart from people and circumstances. That's what contentment is. And that's, it's starting to happen a lot because still some things that come through yet, but I'm finding myself being okay. I'm saying, okay, I get this now. So that Philippians 4 piece, you know, I've learned to be content. I realize that's a process. You can't pray that. You can't study enough for that. It's life situations of all your praying and studying having to come together. How do you accept what God allows? I'm having to learn that. Here's what I want that I'm not getting. Here's what I'm getting I don't want. How do I, and this is the hard part, adjust my desires to fit this situation? That's what I'm learning now in a more practical way. And it has been difficult because I want more in certain situations than God will let me have. And I'm having to say, if you're really sufficient, then you are enough right now. But I want more than you right now. Lord, forgive me. Does that make sense? So... That's kind of where I am right now. That's what he's helped me work through. And eventually I'll do a sermon series on the power and practice of contentment. Not yet, but it's coming. coming. <laughs> It'll be a while, but probably another year or two I'll do that with the congregation. 
Yes, sir. Got a phone in, phone a friend question. Who here. did it? I want to know who I, phoned I'm not, it. In. I'm not uh, divulging. <laughs> I'll tell you over dinner later. <laughs> Great. <laughs> What's your advice on parenting young children? Here is my advice, because I didn't do it well. Okay? You're not called to be a successful parent, you're called to be faithful. And if you stick with faithfulness, you do not get to determine the outcome of your children. Okay, please remember that. Because you did it well doesn't mean your children will function well. You can have all the homeschooling, all the Bible studies, all the devotionals. You can do everything right, but the condition of your child's heart is always according to where God is in his sovereignty, in his hands, in their heart. So the goal for you is not to be a successful parent. Your children are not an extension of you. They have been given to you for you to steward for a time to invest in them. When you stand before the presence of God as a parent, God is not going to judge you on the outcome of your children. He's going to ask you a very simple question. Were you faithful to do what I ask you to do with your children? And that's the key for me because my children... Again, as much as we knew truth, they rebelled. Uh, they decided that they didn't want Christ. And as much as we would put in them and put restraints around them, they would get around those restraints. We had some difficult challenges that taught me what faithfulness meant. Because at the point, if you looked at a point, we were not successful. But God used that to humble us as parents. Uh, our children became broken before the Lord. And we then saw a complete change. But I can't take any credit for that change. But they would say, we remembered, you know, when you told us this. We remembered when you said this. We remembered how you showed us this. But that was God bringing back to their remembrance those things. But ultimately, he brought them to their senses. Now, that's not a promise, though, that God will always do that. Which I always tell parents, you need to be faithful. Don't focus on successful. That's a misnomer in parenting. Because, guys, if I could have controlled my kids, I would have. Trust me. I would have had them thinking what I'm thinking. I mean, I would have had ultimate control over their lives. And God knew it. So he had to break me so that I recognized they're not mine and they're not to be uh, controlled. And the goal is not that they worship me, follow my agenda, but to worship him. Very helpful over the years. Hopefully that helps whoever asks, and I want to find out who <laughs> So a follow-up question on that yes. from me. So this is from me. Uh, how do you relate that then to expectations, biblical expectations for your kids as you're trying to teach them obedience, teach them what it means to walk in an honorable way before the Lord and even then as a Christian uh, and discipline and not making those things idols like you talked about uh, on Monday, um, but also maintaining the expectations? So. I would say to you, look at what the Bible says and not be too caught up in what you would like to see your children do, and to stay faithful to the two tools. God gave us two tools with our children. He gave us correction and communication. So we need to learn how to use those tools, correction and communication. And the communication was meant to be an avenue to give them insight and truth, to encourage correction, to discipline them accordingly. And we are to be faithful to that and trust God's will on that. But our expectations that our kids will come out rightly because we did all the right things, not promised by God. 
not promised. People say, what about the verse, trade up your child and the way it should go? Ah, you're thinking about that verse, right? Again, it's not a promise. It's a general principle. Because if it were a promise, then how many parents have trained up their child in the way it should go and it didn't happen? Principle, not a promise. The generalization. We have to be careful holding on to it as something that's always going to happen. Anybody else? Any other questions? We should have a seminar on expectations. <laughs> so I had posted about this conference on my Facebook page, and a friend of mine in California said, oh, we just had his wife as our speaker for a conference. So can you tell us more what, what she does? She does exactly what I do, only with women. Um, she goes around the country teaching uh, women's conferences. She has a, a ministry called Real Life Ministries. If you catch her on YouTube, ladies, uh, talks with Christian women all around the country, and they have these uh, conversations, does what we call real life cooking, where she has a cooking show where she uses scripture to talk about different things, and then she'll cook after she talks about scripture. Uh, she does Bible studies, and she travels around the country. Uh, she's about as busy as I am a lot of times, uh, meeting with women, uh, training, investing, and just really discipling them around the country. So I would encourage you, check out her website. She's got a new series on YouTube called Understanding Jealousy and Envy. And how, as women, we need to work that well, not me as a woman, but as women, you know, we need to work through, yeah. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. How women need to work through those particular things. And so I would encourage you ladies, go online, check her out. Um, Real Life Ministries is her website. Love to have her come be a part of whatever you're doing. Anybody else? Any questions? Did we see one? Ah, there we go. Yes, sir. In Ephesians 4.11, I guess I've interpreted that verse wrong. It says he gave apostles, teachers, evangelists, etc. And in my discipling, many people would say, well, I can't be an evangelist because I don't have that gift. He gave that, but I didn't get it. So I would challenge people to say this. If you keep reading that text, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints. So the gifts were given so that you could do the work. So when someone says, well, I'm not an evangelist, I would say to them, neither am I. But are we not called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ? which means we build relationships in order to give them the gospel. No, well, I don't know how to be a disciple. Well, let's get you involved in a congregation that shows you how to submit to the authority of God, the purpose, objectives of your life. And as you learn, you can begin to help others in the process. So always, my concern is when we look at our inadequacy as excuses for not submitting to God, we're doing exactly what Moses did. And it's not our abilities, it's our availability that God is after. And the more we submit ourselves to him, 
He can use us as instruments in his hands in so many ways. And what I love to encourage people on is it's never been about what you can accomplish. It's about what God can do through you. All he's asking is for your submission to his will and watch him do his work through your life. So let's stop making excuses and start making confession. Let's get to work. That's my... My church hears that almost every other week. My mother used to tell me when I was young, son, every excuse is a good excuse, but no excuse is acceptable. Try living with that. (laughs) But isn't that what God tells us? Every excuse is a good excuse, but no excuse is acceptable. That's why you need to confess and count on my forgiveness. And by my grace, get up. Let's get to work together. Does that make sense, guys? Anybody else? Any other questions or comments you might have? Here's another question through email. Uh, I thought Nick was going to ask this question, but I don't see him. I think he had to take the boys home. So uh, it was a great question. I want to. We asked you at lunch as elders. I want to hear your answer. I think our church family needs to hear it. So Nick said, I would be very interested in hearing Dr. Ellen's thoughts on counseling people struggling with same-sex attraction. What are popular but wrong perspectives or approaches being used in churches of our kind? How does he approach people with sins they believe to be innate? How can the congregation be better prepared as counselors to handle this increasingly common sin issue? So sins that are meant or seeming to be innate, let me start there. Um, There is no sin that you have that cannot be overcome by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no sin that you have that cannot be overcome by you submitting to the Spirit of God to obey. So uh, you may have predispositions towards many things in life, but that's not a predetermination. There's always, because you are a saint, the power to obey. Now, with same-sex attraction, if we flip the script, God has given us the If I could put it this way, there are certain desires that come standard with us as being born. Being in his creation, being born, being um, those whom God created from the earth, we have the desire to eat, the desire to sleep, and the desire for sex. That comes standard with all of us as born or created in the image of God. Now, what has happened with that desire to eat, that desire to sleep, and that desire for sex God also had an order for how we need to sleep, how we need to eat, and an order for sex. What we have done is, by our own flesh and sin, perverted those things. So sexual attraction was designed and created through God in our lives for the opposite sex. So what we do, though, is we seek to and those things either try to undo or undermine those desires for sex according to the perversions that are happening in our hearts. And so if I'm working with someone with same-sex attraction, I'm going to take them back to the reality that this is a desire that has been developed that can be changed. Because according to Romans chapter 1, when a person is burning in desires for a same man or a woman, this is what is clearly a resisting the natural inclinations of our bodies. And so somehow in resisting the natural inclinations, 
I'm going to help them begin to see why this is happening, how this has been perverted, and teach them how to have appropriate desires and how to work that through practically. That's going to take time. People get into homosexuality and things of that for different reasons. And as I've counseled people who've struggled through those issues, it's not all the same. One size does not fit all. Uh, One lady in particular I counseled, she became lesbian because of her hatred of men because when she was a little girl, this boy pulled her dress up in front of everybody. She was so embarrassed that she decided from that point on, I'll never, ever like boys. And her resentment towards men led her to that lifestyle. I've seen people who, because of molestation and being raped, um, the only desires for sex they ever had came from an inappropriate sexual relationship. And as a result, their desires for sex is tied back to that uh, situation. And so they keep trying to go there because whatever pleasure they had from sex came from the inappropriate way. And so then you have others who were trying and experimenting with things, and then as they tried and experiment. So there are many different reasons why people move in that direction. But all of it boils down to one thing. We're taking something that God had as an order, and we're seeking to use it outside of that order. Where there is an inappropriate way of sex, you can find that sometimes people are hurting, and so sex becomes a comfort. Uh, For instance, there have been some situations where I've counseled some individuals who, because of being hurt by the opposite sex, someone that was like a predator played on the vulnerabilities and their desires for comfort and used it to manipulate them, and they wanted it, as I've talked about before, into uh, sexual situations or uh, same-sex issues that they'd never had before, and then it became an excitement, and before you know it, something they wanted. Uh, So you got a lot of different reasons, but it all comes down to this. I'm hurting, I'm hungry, or sometimes I'm hating, and as a result, I take sex outside of God's design to satisfy my hunger, to satisfy my hurting, or to deal with the fact that I'm hating someone. And we use sex in so many different ways, just like we do food, that if we're not careful, we'll make it about sex, not what we're doing with it and the agenda behind it. And the same thing with same sex attraction or anything like that. But it's so much more that that itself is a workshop and seminar all on its own. But hopefully that gives you just a big picture of some things to think about. Anybody else? Any other questions? Thoughts? Yes, sir. Up front. Um, the secular world would look at biblical counseling and probably say that it's not sufficient in dealing with, they might say big issues like chemical imbalances and things like that. Um, so I guess, um, what would be your response to something like that? Or you could probably fate, phrase the question better than I could. Well, they've already said that chemical imbalance is debunked as a theory. So when you look at scientists now, they've realized what we've already said. It was a theory. It was never uh, true to form. And so if you study the latest psychological studies and research, they tell you it's debunked. My concern is never what the culture says, it's when Christians bring the culture to the church. 
And so when Christians start to buy into secular humanistic ideologies, what I tell them is simply this. You are listening to people who have an unbiblical view of man. So if you understand that, you can trace their theoretical premise of man, and then you can see their practice. So for instance, secular humanists believe that people only have a body and brain. Now let that sink in. That's inconsistent with what God says, that we're material and immaterial. So if they believe that man only has a body and brain, then they believe that every behavior, every action or reaction is tied back to the physiological brain, and it requires medication. Well, the scripture shows us that what they blame on the brain, that God holds the heart responsible. So if I understand that, then every time they see a problem with man, they're going to make it physiological, and they want to try to medicate what God is requiring to be dealt with through the word of God and the Messiah. So the moment I know that, and they will take a mental disorder, they'll take every issue, and it's a worldview that's inconsistent. And many of their theories contradict each other because they will say to you, even about the mental disorders, we can't find a pathology for these disorders. What they're saying is, we can't find the physical cause for what we call a mental disorder. And if you research it more, they'll tell you, these are just descriptions that we have come up with through observation and listening. There's no scientific test. There's nothing that you can do on the x-ray, none of those things. We just observed and we came with these descriptions. So what they're sharing with you is this. I have a human observation without a biblical interpretation. I see these things in this person's life, so I've called this phenomenon bipolar. I've called this phenomenon schizophrenia. I've called this phenomenon borderline personality, but yet there is no physiological test to prove that any of that's physiological. They'll tell you that. And what we say is, we know that there's no test because you just labeled it according to a secular humanistic idea of man, whereas that same phenomenon I can show you in the scripture and how God would have us to address it because the word of God is sufficient. Now, I do that with Christians. I don't do that with unbelievers because they have another agenda. They need the gospel. But too many Christians are using psychology and it's the Trojan horse of the church because they don't have a solid anthropology and they're accepting the anthropology of the culture, which is inconsistent. And whatever you label something determines how you treat it. They love to call sin sickness, so then they treat it as a disease, which means that person stays the same. When you call something what God calls it, then you treat it the way God treats it, you can get the solutions that God provides. And true, solid biblical counseling is sufficient to handle the deepest mental disorders that exist. It's just that we don't talk enough about it and show people how. That's part of the training that I provide. I show people. I've gone through every mental disorder that exists and broken it down through Scripture and talked about how to address it. Because that's part of the training that I had to do that was rigorous in my biblical counseling training. So guess what I do with my students? I make sure they can do because those are labels that we think are scientific, and they're not scientific. They're observations, and they put labels on them. And if I had the time, I'd put up on the screen all the different psychotherapists and psychologists and what they say about mental disorders that say, these are just descriptions. Don't put your hope in them. These are just labels. But yet you've got a whole world 
buying into the labels and not evaluating the descriptions behind the labels to show you it's the same phenomenon that the scripture talks about. They're just using secular ideals to come to a secular position. Because remember, if I can reduce man to body and brain and there is no God and man is his own sustainer, then am I not going to try to create a system to help man without God? And that's exactly what the culture does. But they sound intelligent, and many Christians have bought in, but we can debunk it very quickly by their own logic in many places. So I went the long way around because you, unfortunately, you tapped into my button of where I teach a lot, so I'm going to be quiet because I have a lot of apologetics for psychology and mental disorders and mental illness because as Christians, we need to be solid there. Hopefully, I took the long way around to answer some of your questions. <laughs> I got another question. And if this question was asked last night, or if you covered it last night, you can just tell me, go watch YouTube. Go watch YouTube. No. <laughs> go, ahead. go watch cat videos. No. <laughs> um, you've talked a lot about when we sin against, and we do a lot of sinning against other people, a lot of sinning against God, and when and how to go through that. And you also talked about when something happens to us, our reaction starts neutral, but then it can go negative or positive, or I can't remember the exact wording you have. Loving or unloving. Loving or unloving, yeah. How do you, when a traumatic thing happens in someone's life, whether that's, you've mentioned rape, or you're, you've lost someone, or divorce, or whatever that is, um, and I know a lot of people in this church that have gone through very traumatic things, myself including. How do you help someone, at this point you're neutral, you don't want them to go unloving, you want them to go loving, to go positive, to, to worship God. How do you help them unpack? We That's have, stuff. Yeah, bless your heart. Can I give you a hug right now? <laughs> I can feel it. I just want to give you a big hug, and then I'll answer your question. <laughs> God loves you. The body of Christ loves you. We're going to work it through together. Okay? Let me try to answer that question as tenderly as I can. We want to be like Job's friends before they started talking. Okay? Kind of like what I'm trying to do with you now. I'm with you. And I know it's difficult, and I may not be able to understand, but I want to stand with you. That's part of how we help people with traumatic experiences. First step. As we spend time weeping with those that weep, the next step is when the time is ready, to try to help them to frame the trauma or the experience from a biblical grid. And part of that biblical grid is to take them back to the origin of suffering. Now, why do we even have suffering in the world? And then to look at the categories that the Bible unfolds. There are 12 basic categories of suffering. So my goal is to help the person learn those categories to see where they are, and to embrace that, for whatever reason, God has allowed this suffering in their lives. 
And then over time, we'll look at how would God have you to think about it, the perspectives that he shows from Scripture, how to think about it, and to try to encourage you that he's not going to waste any of this pain, and that it's difficult, but he's not going to waste it, and there's a plan beyond the pain of the moment, but I want to sit with you in the pain of the moment. And we'll look at some basic skills according to the ways that you're suffering, what God has provided to help you through it. And then we talk a little bit about this idea of sorrow. Suffering is what you experience. Sorrow is how you respond. Now I'll begin to help you see that in your sorrow, there are five categories of sorrow. There's the common sorrow, which is I, I'm feeling bad because something has happened to me. But in that common sorrow, if there is not an embracing of the wisdom and the character and the sovereignty of God, your common sorrow will move into what we call chosen sorrow. Chosen sorrow is when you start to grumble and complain about what's happening. Now, the question is, is chosen sorrow a sin? Yes. So then, where there's chosen sorrow, there's going to be conscience sorrow. Because now your conscience is kicking in because you chose to grumble and complain according to the common sorrow you're experiencing. And the key would be to help you understand that in your suffering, this is the sorrow that's happening. How do we help you? to work to where you're not in chosen sorrow and conscience sorrow, how do we move you into embracing God through the process so that we can help you grow through the pain you're going through? And that takes some time. We'd walk slowly through you, truly with you in that, and if there's any places where there is questions or doubts or anything where there's uh, sinful reactions, we'll slowly help you to confess, repent, replace, while still embracing you and the suffering that you're going through. My oldest daughter was raped and molested by her stepfather for nine years. And so when we adopted her to our home, we had to work her through the way I'm sharing with you all of what happened in her life. She's 36 now. You'd never know that that happened to her. But when she came to us, she had had this fear. And in our home, we have an upstairs if she heard anybody coming upstairs, she would have immediate panic attacks because her stepfather used to come in the middle of the night and rape her. So when we got her, she was all over the place. She had been through a lot. She had been used by her mom. Just so many things. She had a lot of suffering. We had to take a lot of time to help her with what I'm sharing with you. And over time, she was able to walk in freedom. As we dealt with her suffering, and we dealt with some of the sin issues that were rising together. But we always started with the suffering, and we would come to the sin. Never starting with the sin. Suffering and then sin. Does that help? Does that make sense? We're welcome. Welcome. We're with you. With you. Right? Anybody else? Any questions? Any thoughts you may have? Yes, sir. This may be a simple question, but where do you find a true biblical counselor? How do you go? Is there an association or something? Absolutely. I just don't trust when the word biblical is included in their title. <laughs> yes, sir. It's called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. AC, not ACDC, but ACBC. <laughs> that happens sometimes. Association of Certified 
biblical counselor. Uh, I am with that organization, and it requires rigorous biblical counseling training before they certify you. And as a fellow, I'm the gatekeeper. So when people go through the training and then they do their hours, they have to have what we call supervision, where they have to do 50 cases of counseling. And they're supervised by someone like me. And if they don't do well in those 50 cases, I don't certify them. Because that reflects on the organization and that means they're not ready. So everyone who's been certified, they've had to go through rigorous training in order to be able to serve. ACBC. Again, not ACDC, ACBC. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions? Yes. Um, so you're a counselor, and where would you go if you needed counseling? My wife first. <laughs> and then I have uh, three or four friends and some of my professors that I can go to. And so they keep me. There are five men that keep me accountable that if I just do crazy things, these five men from around the country can come to my house and really, let's say, have fellowship with me. <laughs> uh, and then I have a couple of friends in the city. Uh, one in particular that we talk regularly. So he's challenging me, he's evaluating me, he's telling me what I don't want to hear, but needs to hear. So that keeps me. Then there's a couple of men in the church that I talk to. So there's about four or five people all together. Anybody else? No more questions? Did I see the hand go up here? No? You're just moving your hand. Okay, you're not asking a question. All right. Anybody else? All right, going once. Going twice. Pastor Matt, I put it in your hand, sir. Thank you, guys. God bless you all. Thank you, Dr. Owen, for ministering so well to us and faithfully loving us through the word. It's been such an encouragement, shot in the arm for all of us spiritually. And I think uh, one of the most encouraging things to me was uh, when someone asked you what you're working through right now. And essentially, it's a lot of what you've taught us. So that's instructive for us, that these are, are lessons you don't learn and move past and find the next thing. These are so foundational that you continue to need to be reminded and encouraged. And we all need that. We're all broken. We've all got issues, uh, sin issues that we're working through. And we need the body. And that's one of the ways that uh, we had been praying as elders, that God would continue to grow us. And he has tremendously over the last few years, but that through this conference, he would grow us as a church family in intentional investment into one another, because uh, that's his prescribed means for uh, this exhortation and constant encouragement in the faith. So I hope this has been helpful to you in that way. We had a great lunch with Dr. Ellen today as elders, just talking through different things. One of the things that came up was his counseling training. He's mentioned that a few times of just some things he does. 
And so we're looking into, as elders, how we can encourage that uh, among the body. So if you have interest in that, we'd like to, to know that. So if you're thinking, hey, I'd love to get more of this, we'd like to know that because we'd like to know how to make that available to you. And so we're thinking through some ideas, and we just kind of want to get a, a straw poll of how many of you are working through that. So if you could do that, that would be very helpful for us, and then we uh, hopefully can encourage you in some way to that end. Uh, as you leave the conference, let me encourage you, you've got some homework to do, so you've got all the notes with you from tonight and also from the rest of the sessions you were able to be at. Let me encourage you to try to uh, review those one time before Sunday. I don't think that's too hard of a task for you to do, just turn the TV off for a half hour uh, or put your phone down for a half hour, whatever that requires, and uh, look through these notes. You don't have to read it word for word, but just look through, like, what, what of that stuck out to you? And just ask the Lord in that review to really grip you with the things you need to be focused on and working on. And then from that review, the second part of your homework is to share that with someone else, okay? So look through it and what's the one or two things? What's the so what for you from this conference? And then solidify that by sharing that with somebody else, whether that's your spouse, a good friend, accountability partner, whatever that is, and encourage them and be encouraged yourself with that truth It'll become more clear to you when you talk to someone else about it and have to verbalize what God's doing in your life through that. And then all of the sessions and notes are on the church website. So if you missed one or like Paula wanted to encourage some friends on Facebook, feel free to share that link to anyone and everyone. And the notes are in PDF form on the webpage. And then also the sessions are recorded and posted there as well with links to the YouTube and the Facebook page if they want the video. All right, so that's all there available for you. And then, as the last thing, uh, I'm going to do this in a second, but I want to encourage you to be praying for Dr. Ellen. He has a, a busy rest of the week, leaves from us tomorrow, flies to Charleston, South Carolina, speaks at a banquet for a counseling center in South Carolina on Thursday night, flies back home Friday, prepares to preach in his church on Sunday, and all the shepherding responsibilities that go with that, plus the professoring and husbanding, and find out he didn't take out the trash when he got home and all that stuff, so... <laughs> So pray for our brother. He's, he has invested much in us, and that is costly to him. I know it's been a joy for him from what I've picked up, but it costs something to do that. So pray for him. Pray that God would, uh, would bountifully bless him for his ministry to us. So I'm going to do that as we close, and then we'll be done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your amazing love to us. You know us better than we know ourselves, and you have not yet lost patience with us and failed to continue faithfully bringing truth to us by your spirit. You have persevered in your love and cared so well for us in mercy. You've been slow to anger and always ready to forgive. Lord, we're humbled and amazed by your grace and we long for more growth. We would be more like your son and more glorifying to you, fulfilling the clearly defined purpose you've given us in your word. Thank you for our brother. Thank you, Father, for bringing him to us. Thank you for his uh, faithful exposition of the word and the wisdom you've granted to him over the years through ministry and through uh, word being applied to his own heart. And Lord, I pray that you would, would bless Dr. Allen with, with grace and peace, strengthen him for the ministry requirements and responsibilities he has ahead of him even tomorrow uh, as he travels and, and still is trying to get other things done. Father, would you bless him and multiply his efforts, increase his ability to accomplish much for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would use our brother and his dear wife in their church in Houston Community of Faith. Pray that you'd bless that body of believers with, with growth and um, 
truth in, uh, and love for one another. Lord, I pray that you would use them mightily in that community for your glory. And then, Lord, we pray that you would do the same here. Thank you for all we've heard. Help us not to be hearers who walk away and forget, but to be doers who are further blessed by your grace. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.